0: The main message I take away from my interview with Will Stubenberg is this. If you're good at many things, maybe you don't have to choose one. You can do them all over the course of your life. In over 45 years, he became a restaurateur, working artist, resort manager, private chef, and today a manager and personal assistant. Here's Will's own story.
1: Hi, my name is Will Stubenberg. I live in Beverly Hills, California. I'm a uh, a personal assistant and a state manager to um, two old business partners. One's a producer and one is a director and actor and writer.
0: So you are now in in California, you're managing the estate. And what does it mean that you, as a manager, like a state manager, what do you do on a daily basis?
1: I organize appointments for plumbers and, and uh, carpenters and roofers because there's always something wrong. It's like you're trying to take care of a giant yacht. And I take care of three of them, three of, this, of the estates. They actually own 11 estates between them. So I take care of three that are here in Beverly Hills.
0: So it's about, yeah, making sure basically that everything runs uh, smoothly.
1: Everything runs because, you know, they're they're old, they're old estates and there's always problems. And so mm. I kind of run all the, um, make sure that, you know, nothing leaks and, you know, electricity is working or the, there's always, you know, you always have to, you know, get a plumber out to rotor-rooter the, you know, the pipes because the, the roots get in and clog everything up. and So it's, you know, it's constant maintenance.
0: Okay. And then, I mean, like anybody hearing uh, the story right now would think, oh, it's easy. I'm going to also be an estate manager, but how do you actually land a job like this? You must have a good network. You know, it's not easy to work for Hollywood or at least for the, you know, celebrities.
1: No, because they're they're all very entitled and most of them, you know, don't ever want to spend a dime on anything. You know, they're difficult, difficult people to work with. But if you show that you are, um, you know, you can be trusted, you know, just honesty, being straightforward, even if you tell them bad news, you have to tell them bad news and then they get they yell at you. I said, don't yell at the messenger. You just have to, uh, persevere and be, um, and you know, make sure that you, you know, that they have an ally. They feel like you're loyal, you're an ally and you know, you can be trusted. So now I've, I've, um, I was basically started just taking care of, you know, one place. And then I ended up taking care of, ended up taking care of three places now, but I'm also, uh, Roger's personal, Roger cameras, personal assistant. And he's getting a little bit older and, um, he's got all these, you know, legal issues he's always dealing with. And, um, so I'm basically his personal assistant, take photographs of things, email, do a lot of computer work for him.
0: Do you also get to um cook for them? Because in your previous life, you were also a caterer and personal chef.
1: Maybe once a month I'll I'll make uh, I'll make a big dinner for Roger. And he you know, he's he's basically likes prime rib or you know, steaks and stuff. I'll make him you know, nice pasta dinners or you know, some nice big thing he can take home and he can eat for a couple of days. He likes that.
0: Talking about reinventing yourself, you were for, well, that's because I know your history, uh, for 42 years, you were in the food business. And so that has very little or nothing to do with the state management, which is, has been more like the last uh, few years of, of your life. How did you start your, your food business? What did you do?
1: I was managing a hotel in San Francisco in the 80s. And I get off work, come back around home, six o'clock in the evening. And my roommate had a small social catering business. And he was getting ready to go out to do a dinner party, a sit-down dinner for maybe, I you know, 12 people. And I come home, I'm kind of tired, and I just want to sit around and have a beer and you know, watch TV. And he say, well, instead of doing that, why don't you come out and wash dishes and, and, and help me? I'll pay you $5 an hour. I said, "Okay, I'll do that." So, you know, so then that means I get get back around I don't know midnight, maybe one o'clock in the morning after everything's done. And I'm tired, but I, you know, I made a little extra money, so I kept doing that. I kind of like that. And he was a chef, and he and I started picking up on things, and I started you know doing the prep work, and then all of a sudden I'm cooking, and all of a sudden you know I'm going out on parties and doing everything by myself. So, uh, I just kind of learned from ground up I learned how to cook and uh, and I became you know not really good at it you know I took some lessons here and there and when I see something that's interesting and I can you know make a you know a little bit of money i will i'll try i'll say hey I'll learn that and I just will do it and I got quite good at it, and one thing led to another somebody in San Francisco heard that I was a really good chef and they were working on a movie or so they said, Hey, we need a We need a chef to, you know, to help, you know, cause we've got 200 extras. So I said, well, okay, I'll try that. And so I started my motion picture catering career <laughs> and uh, it was kind of by accident, but it worked. And uh, all of a sudden I was invited to do other movies, but now they're down in Los Angeles. So I had to move from San Francisco down to Los Angeles and the funny side note, Uh, My first movie was a movie with uh, Robert Downey Jr. and James Wood uh, called True Believer. And that was shot in San Francisco. That was my first movie. So I did motion picture catering for, I don't know, about 10, 12 years or something. All sorts of movies. I mean, probably 30 movies or something. And lots of music videos, lots of TV commercials, and uh, lots of TV shows. And then my last movie I ever did was called Due Date. And uh, of all people, it was Robert Downey Jr.
0: How did you find the motion picture catering as opposed to, you know, managing a restaurant?
1: Extremely difficult.
0: More difficult than, than owning a restaurant?
1: Owning a restaurant can be really, really fun. Like I had my, my last two restaurants. I mean, I just had the best time. I had a great crew. I had great employees. I mean, everything was really fun. And, uh, and it was a very popular restaurant. It was actually an Asian restaurant. I I taught my myself how to cook Asian food. And because I was really tired of eating, you know, bad Asian food, you know, like mystery sauce and weird meat. And, you know, it was in, it, it always made me feel too bloated at the end. It was full of, you know, MSG or something. And I thought, you know, why can't we just have clean, healthy Asian food? So I taught my, how, uh, myself how to make, you know, really good, clean, healthy Asian food. I, I made everything from scratch, made my all of my own sauces. And, uh, I only had the, you know, the really good cuts of meats and, and I did vegan, I did, you know, all sorts of, you know, fun stuff. And it was, those are the last two restaurants were in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And, uh, so I did a little bit of kind of, um, Southeast or Southwest mixed with, you know, Southeast Asian, you know, before, um, Korean tacos came out, which became very famous down in Los Angeles. I was doing them, you know, six, seven years before uh, they were doing it here. But I would do Asian tacos, basically. And everybody would just, they'd come back the next day and say, I had dreams of these tacos. I want more.
0: (laughs) Oh, that was successful. And uh, so... Then a restaurant and then being a personal chef. I would imagine, you know, not 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 knowing any of this. Uh, that you know, just working for one actor or one small crew would be easier than actually managing a whole restaurant. So why did you, why did you find it um, difficult?
1: Because the personalities involved, and usually the, a movie crew would consist of between maybe eighty to one hundred and twenty people. Where you're cooking for eighty to one hundred and twenty people. Sometimes it's you know six hundred people, once in a while. But uh, you're dealing with really big egos. You know the people aren't very really nice. And I'll and I'll tell you, being a motion picture caterer, you're kind of at the bottom of the of the uh, you know the list of people. <laughs> yeah, you you, you know kind of you're the cater. You know, it's like everybody expects you to jump when they when they bark at you.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And you rarely you get credits in the movies you know i mean they will say caterer You know, the company name yeah sometimes i'll say you know chef you know but nobody really cares and so um uh, you're really at the bottom but you know it can be really fun and interesting and uh, and i got a lot of outside uh, work out of it because a lot of movie stars really like my cooking and so they would they would say hey you know uh can you come and cook for me you know for a month if you're not doing a movie and i say, sure you know like i was uh, Tom Cruise's personal chef. I was um, Harrison Ford's personal chef, Steven Spielberg, Sylvester Stallone. Most of the really famous big actors are very, very nice people, very nice. It's usually, you know, a lot of the up-and-coming people that I think they're, um, you know, they're already, you know, the great movie star, but they're just they've just come on the scene, and all of a sudden they think they're, you know, God's gift to everybody, and so they're they can be a little bit difficult to work with.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. Yeah, I had a similar experience in my own, you know, production life, but it seems that you do have a very good sense of uh, service and understanding, you know, uh, what to say and how to handle. very, you know, complex personalities, let's say, and this seems to be Across um, the careers that you've made, because you have had many careers, and uh, and it seems that you're still reinventing yourself, and uh, God knows what's going to be next, right? <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> I really admire you. It's it's great because it shows that you know we we can always start something new, um, no matter when in, during our lives, and um, and you actually have even been um, a sculptor.
1: Yeah, a sculpture. sculpture. I, I, I was a working artist, meaning I, uh, my, um, my artwork actually provided me with a very good living, so I didn't have to have a second job.
0: Which in itself is a great, yeah, it's a great achievement. It's,
1: it's really, really wonderful to create something out of nothing and then sell it and pay the bills. It's amazing, and I bought my first house that way.
0: Yeah, congratulations!
1: Yeah, and um, and the house was one of these mid-century modern homes in Sacramento. And then I remodeled the house, and I was also because I was in this art world, I collected a lot of art, and so I have this big, giant, vast art collection. And um, so I did the interior of the house and made it beautiful. And uh, the local Sacramento Bee newspaper. Uh, one of the uh, ladies who works there, she came over to the house for a party and she said, oh, I've got to write a story on this house. And she hired a photographer and she wrote this wonderful story about me being this artist and, and designing this house and and uh, my art career and stuff. And then, uh, so there was a story in it. And um, And then I went to a very, very big show in Baltimore, Maryland and I had to had the newspaper out of uh, me on the cover of the of the newspaper, and and this lady who ran this uh, she had a she's the editor of this uh, very big uh, national art magazine, big glossy art magazine, and she said, "My God, I want to do a story just like this." And so we redid it, we redid the photo shoot, and did another big story, and all of a sudden. Four months later, it comes out and I'm walking through the airport in Atlanta and I am go by the newsstand and there's me on the cover of this national magazine. I was like, wow. <laughs> I thought yeah, it was the middle story in the back where <laughs> they put me on the cover.
0: <laughs> it seems that over the course of your life, uh, a lot of things have happened sort of organically that kind of landed onto your laps and um, things happened or you were in the right place at the right time. Uh, I wonder, have you? what did you study and did you have any idea where your life would be taking you? I mean, did you have a clear idea when you were young of what you would do?
1: Not in the least. I was completely confused. I went to uh, Santa Barbara City College after high school, and then I went to um University of California, Santa Barbara, but I only stayed for two semesters and um I tried to get guidance from the counselors and nobody knew what what to say or you know, I couldn't get any direction and I was lost. I was just drifting i was studying uh, i was a economics uh major and um political science. But I always took art classes because I was always a painter when I was young in high school. So I always had my finger in the art world somewhat. So then I just didn't know where to go. I had no idea. But Santa Barbara was beautiful. But all of a sudden, uh, uh, my brother my, or my sister said, hey, why don't you come out to Chicago? Because she was living in Chicago. And so I said, okay. So I moved to Chicago. And I got a job at the Chicago Board of Trade in commodities futures trading. I worked right on the, uh, on the floor of the Board of Trade and it was amazing. It's like, you know, it's like the stock market, but they we deal in commodities like wheat and corn, soybeans. And it was absolutely, to me, it was the center of the universe. But it was, uh, it was uh, you know, yeah. I, I couldn't see myself, you know, doing this for a career. And my brother was working at Club Med in Martinique. And he says, hey, if you got a couple of weeks off, I can give you two weeks of free Club Med. All you have to do is get from Chicago to New York, pay that airfare, and then I'll get you on the charter down to Martinique. And I said, okay. Uh, so I went down to Martinique, and I said, I want to do this. I want to be a GO. A <laughs> 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 And because uh, they're all, you know, everybody's running around in their little French bikinis and they're all tan and everybody's, you know, sauvage. And, you know, and I'm <laughs> going, was wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm all pasty white from Chicago.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How old were you back then?
1: I think I was about 23 or four. And then my brother said, hey, I can get you a job. You have to move to Eleuthera, Eleuthera, Bahamas at the Club Med in Eleuthera. And I said, OK. I'll do it. I quit my job at the Chicago Border Trade, downtown Chicago. And all of a sudden, I, I go down to the Bahamas, and uh, I become a GO.
0: <laughs> no way.
1: They say, well, yeah, what, do you, what can you do? And I say, oh, I can sail on you know I, I've been sailing since I was a little kid. And uh, first, they made me land sport director, director of sport rest, uh, uh, land sports, whatever that means. But I took people out on you know, jogging trips around the beach and stuff and frisbee and and softball and you know stupid stuff like that. It was kind uh-huh. of boring. I wanted to get in the water. And so uh they said well we have an opening for a sailing instructor. I said I'm your guy. Let's do it. So I became a sailing instructor. And then I got a contract and, and they sent me to after I was finished with the uh the Bahamas and they sent me to uh the west coast of Mexico, Playa Blanca, Mexico, about an hour and a half south of Puerto Vallarta. First of all, I couldn't speak Spanish. I would n- never been to Mexico. I had no interest in going to Mexico. I got down there and I was in heaven, you absolute fell in heaven, fell <laughs> in love. And they made me the, the chief of snorkeling. Okay, <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> snorkeling <laughs> snorkeling. But by by doing that, I learned how to free dive, and uh, I became I, I actually held a Club Med record for the for the deepest dive on you know just with uh, one breath of air. This is at that time. At that time, you know, free diving, nobody knew. You know, it was kind of you know if you didn't know what you're doing, you're probably going to die doing it. But I just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper. And uh, had, I had this big giant boat that, you know, I was, you know, running the whole boat and, and then, you know, we'd put the uh, depth gauge on and I see how deep it was. And so one day I actually made it down to 135 feet and that was my, that was my record.
0: Uh-huh. Congratulations. <laughs> Actually, we could go on and on like this, but talking about all your adventures uh, forever. Do you have anything uh, planned for um, the future? Like, do you see anything else coming up?
1: The only thing I really want to do is get back to the islands. And uh, like I have mentioned to you before, I, I was down in the Turks and Caicos. So I've always been down in the Caribbean. And I'm from Honolulu originally. So I've always been growing up around the beaches and and uh a little little anecdote going back from i was born in hawaii and my family has been there for 100 years a little over 100 years but when i was three years old or two years old my parents got a divorce and my mom took the kids and we ended up in paris and then london and then we finally uh, ended up in norway My mom raised us as Norwegian. We went to Norwegian schools.
0: Norway. Uh, Hansa Stubenberg.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. No, we had no connection to Norway whatsoever. My mom just, we went there for, to go there for like a week just for vacation to see what it was like. We were living in London and London was foggy. My mom didn't like it. She was miserable and it was cold and dark and, and, and she goes, let's get. Go. And she saw a poster in the window of a travel agency. He said, come to Norway. And it said, blue sky, some handsome blonde guy jumping over a house, you know. And and she goes, okay, let's go to Norway. So we got on a on a, on a steamship from, uh, from uh, what's that, Northern Port City. But anyway, and so we ended up in Newcastle, left Newcastle, and it was like an overnight journey and we ended up in Oslo. And my mom got off the ship and she said, we're home. This is where we're going to live. She immediately fa- immediately fell in love with it, and then we actually moved to a little ski village, Yailo, up uh, north of Oslo, and lived there. It was wonderful, absolutely magical place to grow up.:
0: Oh, fantastic. <laughs> in my
1: first language.
0: And your first language Oh
1: yeah. yeah yes, Niiko <laughs> Norska.
0: <laughs> Thank you, will. That's, uh, that's been very. Very entertaining, you know, a very filled life of um, surprises and um, things coming on, to your, on your way that you probably didn't even think, you know, were possible. And, and that's what life is about. Um, is there any lesson you've learned that others could, uh, could like, would like to hear?
1: Be honest, always speak the truth and enjoy other cultures. I love other, other cultures. I think that's what makes the whole world go around. And I'm com- completely confused at how people, especially in the United States these days, are so anti-cultural you know, cultural differences. I think you embrace them. You embrace the food, the art, the language, everything.
0: It's very enriching, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that each of us creates his own professional reality. We're often molded by what the educational system expects from us. We don't take risks, as it is a scary process. But what if we did take one risk? And what if it did pay off and enriched us for, say, one year, two years, or maybe a lifetime? Food for thought.